Okay, well today we're going to uh, hear from uh, Mark's uh, Gospel, or Mark's account of the death of Jesus. And uh, we're reading from Mark uh, 15, verses 16 to 32. And uh, just to um, kind of put you into the story a bit, uh, this is the point in which Jesus has been betrayed. Uh, He's been arrested. He's faced a phony trial uh, before the Sanhedrin. Peter has denied him, and uh, Jesus has been delivered over to Pilate, uh, the governor who who caved into the pressure of the crowd and sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And uh, now we hear uh, what happens next. So here we are at uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should get. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So this passage, it's uh, the first half of uh, Mark's account of the crucifixion. There's a little bit more to come in the next passage, but uh, this is the actual act of the soldiers crucifying Jesus. And uh, you can see, if we put the um, passage up again, uh, you can see that the crucifixion, it happens right in the middle of the passage, in verse 24. And I don't think Mark could be more concise, even if he wanted to, because all that he tells us about the crucifixion is this. Verse 24, and they crucified him. And that's it. (laughs) Nothing else. He doesn't tell us any of the actual details of the actual crucifixion. Now, there's no mention of nails in hands and feet, no mention of uh, the pain and and the blood. Uh, There's no mention of the moaning that would have been going on or the struggle to breathe uh, that Jesus experienced. Uh, And it's surprising because crucifixion is said to be one of the most barbaric forms of execution ever devised by mankind. Uh, it was, it was, it's said to be the worst. 
because it was all designed to prolong the pain. It was designed to keep a, a, a prisoner right on the edge of death for as long as possible. Because the way they were hung up on the cross, it meant that they actually couldn't breathe when they were hanging because of the, the way the arms were extended back. And so the only way that the person could breathe was to push up on the nails. So can you imagine that? They're stuck between not being able to breathe or having to pull themselves up on the nails. It's horrendous. And they were like that. Sometimes they would last days before they would finally go. Uh, it was horrendous. And yet Mark doesn't mention any of that. Doesn't say a word about the pain of crucifixion. There's no mention. Instead, Mark wants to draw our attention somewhere else. He doesn't want us to focus on the pain of Jesus' crucifixion, but rather he wants us to see the shame of what's happening, the shame of the cross. That's the focus of this passage because you'll notice all the details around the actual crucifixion are all about people mocking, ridiculing, deriding, insulting, humiliating Jesus. And so Mark wants us to understand the shame of the cross. And so that's our topic today. We're going to consider the shame of the cross. What does that mean? And what does that mean um, for us today? So let's just have a look at the details of all this uh, shaming and try to get a sense of what's happening. Uh, now, I've counted there's eight incidents of shame in this passage. So I'll just quickly go through them. First, you've got the soldiers. So in verse 16, it says the whole battalion, they got together in the governor's headquarters to have a little fun with Jesus. Uh, they had heard the charges against Jesus. They had heard that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And they thought that was hilarious. They thought, look at this guy, this weak, pathetic guy claiming to be the king. And so they want to have a little bit of fun. So they dress him up as a mock king, put this purple robe on him, put a crown on his head, only that it's a crown of thorns. And uh, you can just imagine them laughing and jeering at Jesus, uh, thinking this is so funny. Uh, Matthew, uh, in Matthew's account, it mentions that they also put a, a, a reed in Jesus' hand, you know, like a royal scepter. But Mark tells us they must have taken it off him and now they're hitting him over the head. And uh, as they do that, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him. Uh, and not only that, they, they kneel before him. Instead of a kiss of homage, they spit on him. It's terrible. And you've got to realize that Jesus wasn't just sitting there, just going with the flow. He wasn't sitting there thinking, you know, come on, you idiots, get on, get on with it. You've got to realize that Jesus at this point was in absolute agony because the verse just before this passage, verse 15, it says that Pilate had Jesus flogged before this incident. And you've got to realize that flogging meant a lashing with a, a special whip that had bits of metal and bone in the end of it uh, that was designed to rip the skin off the guy they're lashing. And there was no limit on how many lashes the person could get. Sometimes people who went through that died before they actually got to the cross. Jesus has just been through that. And so you can imagine him 
dripping with blood, half dead. Now dressed up like this king, the soldiers thought this was hilarious. Look at this guy. Look at this pathetic sight, they thought. They thought it was all fun and games to mock this one who claimed to be the king of the Jews. The next incident of shame is in verse 21 uh, because normally the, the, the criminal, the one who, who was going to be crucified, would have to carry the cross to the place of execution. It was kind of like a walk of shame through the city and everyone could like see them and stare at them as they went past. And yet here we see that the soldiers have to force someone else to carry the cross for Jesus. Why? Well, obviously because he's too weak. There's too much blood loss, too much bruising. He can't carry the thing. He can hardly walk. And again, it's a picture of humiliation. This guy, he can't even carry his own cross. And then there's another element of shame, and that is the location. So verse 22, have a look at that. It says, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And this was a spot on the northwest side of the city, uh, sort of in the corner of like where the, where the city wall is. It's in a corner. And it's likely that the Romans chose that spot because it was a place where there would be maximum coverage. You know, that's a place where so many people would walk past and see these people being crucified. And, uh, you know, this would be like um, if they were going to do it here, uh, they would do it out the front of Flinders Street Station at 8.30 on a Monday morning. Because the idea, maximum view, the most people possible can look and see these pathetic individuals hung on crosses. Uh, it's, it's to humiliate them. It's all about shame. Then fourth, there's the stripping of Jesus' clothes. So in verse 24, it mentions the soldiers divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. So what was Jesus wearing then when he was up on the cross? Nothing. That's what they did. It was a way of humiliating these people, exposing them before a crowd. You know, their, their hands are tied. They can't do anything to cover themselves. And then fifth is the inscription. So verse 26 says, uh, the charge against him read, the king of the Jews... Now, that would be all right if it was above a throne or on a palace. But this is a wooden, it's a little sign nailed above Jesus on the cross. And it's designed to mock him. This, look at this guy, the king of the Jews. How pathetic. Then verse 29, it says, those passed by derided him. See, while Jesus is going through all of this, all that he can hear is people yelling at him, people laughing at him, people swearing at him. I mean, derided, it's a, it's a harsh word. It means that people were yelling out swear words, telling him what they thought of him. That's all he can hear, you know, all the suffering, and then that's what he has to endure as well. And then verse 31, the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another. Now, these are the guys who had plotted it all, all along. For ages they were looking for a way to kill Jesus. Now it's finally happening. They are absolutely delighted. And so they're mocking Jesus amongst themselves. And then finally, at the very end, you've got there's two criminals hanging beside Jesus. And they use their dying breaths 
to, to revile Jesus. Now, revile means to mock out of anger, to be really angry with someone and just lash out. And, and they're in the same state as Jesus. They're having to push up to get their breath, but they're using those breaths to, to lash out, to insult and abuse Jesus. Now, Luke tells us one of those criminals has a change of heart. But at first, he's in with everyone. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. One after another, it takes in turns humiliating him. Now, that's a massive contrast to what happened on the Sunday before this. Because on the Sunday before this, that's when Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. And there was a huge crowd of disciples cheering for him rejoicing that the king has come. Where's that crowd gone now? They're nowhere to be seen. Here's another crowd. They're not rejoicing over the king. No, they're mocking the king. That's what was on their lips. You call yourself a king. Pathetic. And so Jesus, he must have looked so weak so pathetic, so humiliating. This is the one who claimed to be the Messiah. The Messiah, completely abandoned, completely left alone, insult after insult hurled at him. It's like everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone wants to rub into his face how useless he looks, how powerless he is, how defenseless he is. And the question is, why? Why does everyone want a piece of Jesus? Why is there no one neutral in all of this? And the answer is, it's actually because of the claim. See, that's what people are attacking about. You claim to be the king of the Jews. And the king of the Jews, that's it. It's another word for the Messiah. Now, you've got to realize that the Messiah was not just, you know, he, he's a bloke, he's a Messiah. No, no, the Messiah was actually the divine king. It's, it's God come into the world. Uh, if you read Psalm 2, uh, Isaiah 11, there are passages about the, uh, about the Messiah, and he's a powerful figure. He is the divine king who has come. He's the one who owns and rules everything. He's the one who, before every knee, must bow. He's the one who has authority over all things. He has authority over all of us here. That's what the Bible says the Messiah is. He's the one that you and I, we need to bow before. We need to give our lives over to. That's the Messiah. And that's a claim Jesus made that claim. Now, that's a claim that's either true or it is absolutely outrageous. How can a man claim to own and rule everything? How can a man claim to tell us how to live our lives? See, either Jesus is right or he is offensive. He's outrageous. No wonder everyone wants a piece of him. And do you realize what we see in the crowd? You know, anyone who actually takes the time to listen to Jesus, listen to what he says about himself, look at his life, look at the things he do, anyone who takes the time to investigate Jesus will do either one of two things. 
they will either fall down before him in worship and give their lives to him or they will absolutely hate him and reject him and despise him. They too will mock him. They're the only options because of who he is. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And all the people in the passage, maybe except for Simon, apparently he became a believer, but everyone else, they cannot accept that the king, the Messiah, could be so weak, so useless. Now here's the thing about all of this. All this shame and humiliation that Jesus went through, do you know that he expected it? He anticipated it. He actually knew it was coming. He knew. Uh, if you read Mark's account, uh, you realise that ever since the disciples recognised Jesus as the Messiah, ever since that point, he's been constantly telling them, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. You know, when Peter first heard that, he, he said, not a chance. Took Jesus aside and had a hard word to him. That's ridiculous. And we know what Jesus said to Peter. Uh, but let's just have a look at an example of um, what Jesus was saying to the disciples. So Mark chapter 10, verse 33, uh, he said to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's, that's Jesus, that's his title for himself, uh, he says he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now, how did Jesus know all of that? How could he predict all of that with such accuracy? Well, apart from the fact that he's God in the flesh, that, that's going to help. Um, but the reason Jesus knew it is because the Bible said so. In the, old, the, the, the scriptures that they had, what we have is the Old Testament, it predicted these things with amazing accuracy. So we read from that passage in Isaiah, verse 6. We'll have a look at that again, because uh, it's said there, this is the servant speaking, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did, my, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. That was written 700 years before Jesus came. Talking about this servant. Who is this servant? A mysterious figure who suffers on behalf of the nation. But perhaps the most famous prediction about the sufferings of the servant is Isaiah 53. And there it says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That was a very confusing um, passage for the Jewish people because they were looking for a, a Messiah and yet there's this strand of prophecies about this one who is a servant, who would suffer, who would be hated, rejected, mocked and spat on. And they couldn't work out how did those two things fit together? A powerful king, a suffering servant, how could that ever work? They just assumed it was talking about two different people. And yet, all along, it was talking about one, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is the powerful king who comes as the suffering servant. And so Jesus knew all of this was talking about him. 
He knew that his death would take place. But he also knew that it involved the shame, the mocking, the spitting. He knew all of that. It's part of the plan. The mocking is part of the plan. And we have to ask why. Why did Jesus have to go through all of the shame? Why couldn't, it, you know, if he has to die, why couldn't it just be simple? Why couldn't he just get shot or thrown off a cliff or poisoned? Why did he have to go through all of this humiliation and have people insult him? Why did all that have to happen? Why was that part of the plan? <clears throat> and the reason is it's actually so that we don't have to. The reason Jesus endured the shame of the cross is so that we don't have to. Now, I'll explain what that means. <clears throat> Think about it like this. There are two types of shame, and we all experience both of them. One type of shame is the shame that we feel when we do something wrong. The other type of shame is the shame we feel when someone does wrong to us. And what we see here is that Jesus helps us with both types of shame. See, so think of the, the first one, the shame that we feel when we do something wrong. Now, I wonder, do, do you feel, do you know what it's like to feel ashamed for something you've done? Do you know what that feels like? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I mean, we, we live in a culture that desperately tries to get rid of that shame. You know, we, we're supposed to be able to live shamelessly, you know, live the way we think we should be able to live and, and, and not worry about what anyone thinks. And of course, we're good at justifying ourselves so that we can do things that are really shameful and yet feel good about it. But see, every now and then it breaks through. The shame of realising I have done wrong. Shame, do you know what shame is? <clears throat> shame is the fear of being exposed. Of having people look at something about us that's wrong, that's evil, that's ugly. That's what shame is, the fear of being exposed. And see, all of us do experience it. All of us have that sense of distress when we know we've done something wrong and when we're worried someone will find out. Someone will see us in our worst state. And uh, because we feel shame, therefore we try to hide our mistakes. We try to cover them over. We try to justify them. And uh, th this is why respectable people can, can be slaves to addiction. Because they're too ashamed to reach out for help, saying, I have a problem, will you help me? But see, the real problem with shame... Shame actually causes us to run away from God, right? Because we all sin, we don't like God because God can see into our hearts. And we don't like that. And so we try to block him out of our lives. We try to remove him from our thinking, try to remove him from our conscience. And so that's one type of shame. It's the shame that we feel when we do wrong. But there's another type of shame and that's the shame that we feel when someone does wrong to us. Do you know, when I was in primary school, there was a, a girl in my class uh, who was from a family that had some, some serious uh, financial and social struggles. 
And so often this girl would turn up to, to school with um, messy hair, dirty clothes, uh, she was a little overweight. And so every now and then, you know, the kids would tease her, make fun of her because her dress wasn't clean that day. Uh, but the saddest part was that at that time, I had a teacher who was a genuine bully. And there were certain kids in the class that she would pick on and humiliate in front of the class. And sadly, this little girl uh, from this struggling family, she caught the brunt of it. And the teacher would constantly humiliate her in front of the class. She would even encourage the class to tease her. It was a horrible thing to witness, a horrible thing to see, a horrendous evil. Now, thankfully, it didn't last too long because one of the students dobbed her into the principal and she got in trouble, very big trouble, and she was sacked. Um, but what that little girl faced, how do you erase that? How does someone overcome that kind of humiliation, that kind of shame? Uh, but I'm sure it's something that many of you here know what it feels like. You probably know what it feels like to be humiliated, teased, laughed at, ignored, belittled, abused. Uh, maybe some of you here are carrying around scars of being humiliated. It's a horrible experience. But see, what you need to realise is that Jesus can help you with that type of shame as well. He helps with both types of shame. The shame that we feel for having done wrong and the shame that we feel when wrong is done to us. He helps us with both. See, with the first one, the wrongs we've done, what is, how does Jesus help us with that? He forgives our sin. That's the good news. The whole reason he came into the world was to forgive our sin to do something about it. He came to take away our sin so that we no longer have to run away from God, so that we can be unashamed in God's presence. Uh, there's a verse in 1 John, 1 John chapter, chapter 2, verse 28. It says that if we're trusting in Jesus, we can be unashamed at his coming. How about that? To be able to stand before a holy God and know that there's nothing that we need to hide because Jesus has taken it all away. How good is that? That's one way Jesus helps us with shame. But the other way, he helps us overcome that shame that we shouldn't feel. The shame of being sinned against. The shame of being humiliated. Uh, because look at what Jesus went through. He went through the worst form of humiliation ever invented by humankind. The shame of the cross. That was the worst way to shame someone. And so Jesus, he is the king who knows what it's like to be humiliated. He's the king who knows what it feels like to be mocked, to be insulted, to be teased, to be laughed at, to be treated unjustly. He knows what it's like to be hated, to be abused. He actually gets what you've been through because he has been through it himself and more. And this is, this is why he can help you with your shame. He can actually help you. You can go to him, and when you go to him, you know that someone who knows what it feels like. 
See, when we're shamed in these ways, we find it very hard to let go of. You know, we, we replay the incident over and over. We can let it shape our lives. We can let it shape our outlook on life, uh, our fear of people. It can make us withdraw and, and be uh, like a recluse sometimes. It can make us bitter and cynical. But with Jesus, you don't see any of that. Even though Jesus went through the worst shame possible, you don't see him withdrawing. You don't see him becoming angry or cynical with the world or bitter towards those who mistreated him. Instead, what you see on Jesus, you even see it as he hung on the cross. It's in Luke's account. Luke tells us that one of the last things Jesus said before he died was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. How about that? The people who are insulting him, he prays for their forgiveness. How could he do that? How was he so free to not let that get to him? And the answer is because of what he was achieving on the cross. What he was achieving on the cross meant that he was able to not let the shame get to him. And if we know what he was achieving on the cross and we embrace that, that will be our freedom from shame too. So what was Jesus achieving on the cross? Well, let's go back to the passage. Look at Mark. Uh, the one thing that I skipped over earlier was what the people who were insulting Jesus were actually saying. What were they actually saying? Uh, let's, well, they're all saying the same thing, really. Um, so look at verse 29. Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then verse 31, the priests and scribes, they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So they're all saying the same thing. Save yourself, come down. Then we will think you're okay. okay save yourself. Then we'll believe that you're the Messiah. And the most ironic one, though, is that one in verse 31 where it says, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He saved others. He cannot save himself. There is incredible irony in that statement. Because what was Jesus doing on the cross? Saving others. What would happen if he saved himself? He wouldn't save others. See, he, he, Jesus, it's almost like he's in a bind. He either saves himself or he saves others. But see, stay, if he stays on the cross, if he goes through with it to the end and dies... That will mean the salvation of others. And so that, that's the irony. It's only by staying on the cross, putting up with all of the shame, all of the mocking, all of the agony, that's how he can save us from sin and the shame that we have. Uh, and, and the reason is, again, it's Isaiah predicted why. Because in Isaiah, Isaiah said about this servant this Messiah, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so what that's saying is all the things that we've done against God, all the things that should make us ashamed before God, Jesus has paid for all of that by being punished in our place. So the death he got, that's the death we should have had 
The rejection he got, that's the rejection we should have from God because of our sin. And yet Jesus took it on himself. He saved others by not saving himself. And so this statement, here they are mocking Jesus. Ha ha, he saved others but he can't save himself. What they don't realise is that that's actually true. That's the gospel. Jesus saves others by not saving himself, by dying for sinners. The very taunts that were intended to shame him is a statement that points to his glory and the glory of the cross, that in the cross, God is saving sinners. That's the glory of the cross. This is how the king saves the world, by dying for us. And it's amazing, no one in the story could see this. The soldiers, hail king of the Jews, uh, the crowd, um, you who are going to destroy the temple, uh, then the religious leaders, they were all looking at the greatest revelation of, of God's glory and they couldn't see it. All that they could see is shame. But the real question is, us today, can you see the glory of the cross? Can you see behind all of the shame, all of the rejection and the dying? Can you see in that God's solution to this broken world? Can you see in that the solution you need to your broken heart? That's what it is. That's what Jesus came to do. The whole reason Jesus was despised and rejected was so that we can be welcomed and loved for all of eternity by God. And when you know Jesus has done that for you, then you know you can be unashamed before him. You know that when he comes again, you'll be able to stand with boldness because you know there's no, there'll be nothing in you to condemn because Jesus has taken it all away. And listen, if you are trusting in Jesus, that means that what defines your life now is what he has done for you, not what other people have done to you. And the more you lean into that, the more that will actually free you from those past hurts. You'll be able to let them go. And what's, what replaces those past hurts is the joy, the joy of knowing that you have a saviour and that you're safe for all of eternity and you'll be loved for all of eternity. That's the good news of the cross. The shame of the cross is actually the glory of the cross. It's the glory for all who believe. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful picture a picture that speaks of humiliation and shame and yet what's really going on is a picture of glory. The glory of the king of the universe coming into the world and being rejected in our place, being despised in our place, being killed in our place. And we thank you, Father, that because he was treated like that, because he died like that, that we know that when we believe in him, that all of our sins and all of our shame, it's taken away and that we're accepted by you forever. Oh Lord, thank you for this good news. Uh, we pray that that will, really will shape our lives, that we will let what Jesus has done for us uh, shape the way that we think, the way that we um, reflect on past uh, hurts and things. Lord, we pray that that would uh, help us to be able to forgive like he forgave and to be able to love like he loved. And we pray this in his name. Amen.